If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Galatians. You'll be hearing a lot of that lately in the weeks and months to come as we begin our study through the book of Galatians in our morning worship service. Our text this morning is from chapter 1, the first three verses. I'll be reading the first five to finish the thought off. Next week, we'll be looking at verses 4 and 5 of this chapter. So, please give attention now and hear the word of the Lord that is authoritative, sufficient, and true. Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised Him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Praise be to God for the reading and hearing of His Word. Have you ever had the experience of the cliche that says you can't go home again? Maybe it wasn't home where you went, but you went somewhere that was very familiar to you. But it wasn't like you remembered it should be. Not just that it was different, but it wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Even children can experience that, right? You move to a new neighborhood... Maybe it's only five minutes away in Katy, and you go back and you're all excited, ready to play with your old friends, and it's just not the same. People aren't treating each other the way they should. Things have developed differently. And maybe it's even come to your mind to say that, you know, it shouldn't be like this. We shouldn't treat each other like that. And sometimes it's very disheartening because people don't listen. Sometimes they'll even throw up in your face things that you've done. Like, who are you to tell us, Mr. Fancy Pants? You moved to a bigger, better house. Why should we listen to you? Or, well, you got the big promotion at work. Why should we listen to you now, now that you're a boss? Or something along those lines. If you've ever had that experience, then I think you have a small taste of what the Apostle Paul must have felt as he sat down to write this letter to the church of Galatia. It's actually many churches. We think that these are the churches that Paul planted in the southern region of Galatia. It's sort of in the middle of what we call Turkey. He planted these churches along with his fellow laborer Barnabas as they went through, and it's described for us in the book of Acts. And so these churches would have been dear to him. But there's a problem. You see, things aren't settled yet in the church. There's good reason to believe that this is one of the first, if not the first letter that Paul wrote. This is, to give you a chronological milestone, this is happening before Acts 15. You know that big council where they get together and they decide that the Gentiles don't have to keep the law of Moses to be believers in Jesus? This is on the front side of that. Things are still very fluid. 
Paul goes out and he plants some churches and people come in behind him and undermine him. They say, you listen to who? Paul? Let me get this right. Paul, not Peter, not James, not us. Paul? And they're sowing dissension behind him. Things aren't settled. But you know the wonderful thing about the Word of God is that it's timeless. Because that describes much of church history. It's no surprise that the Reformers turned to Galatians and called it one of the capital epistles. One of the main epistles of Paul. It's perhaps the one that Luther loved best. And he brought the word of Galatians to the church in his day. Because they were unsettled. They were facing some of the same problems. And it's not a coincidence that I think if you went and polled churches in the PCA and in the OPC and asked them what the pastor was preaching on, that many, perhaps a majority or a plurality, would say Galatians. And that's because, again, in our day, we're unsettled. There are people going around saying, well, believing in Jesus is good, but you need to be faithful. But you need to do this. But you need to keep this covenant boundary. But you need to do this. And so the timeless word of Galatians comes to us. You see, this is not a historical landmark. This is a word for our soul. And so what I'd like us to see this morning are three things as a help to us. First, I'd like us to ask, who are these Galatians? And I think that's an important question because there's a sense in which we have met the Galatians and they are us. Then secondly, I'd like us to see Paul, Christ's messenger to the Galatians. And then finally, I'd like us to see the great God of the Galatians. So first we'll look at the Galatians, and then Christ's messenger, and then God Himself. Well, who are these Galatians? We can tell this from the book. And we're going to do a bit of turning this morning, because we're going to kind of take a big broad sweep of this book before we really dive in and look verse by verse. But from this book itself, we can tell several things about the Galatians. The first thing is, they are a people in need of doctrine. They're a people in need of teaching. To many, the very word doctrine has a very bad connotation to it. Some will shrug and say, oh, boring. And I'm sure that's what some people thought when Paul was bringing this letter. Some will say, do we really need to be bothered with that? Can't we just... X, Y, Z. But you see, Paul knows from the reports he's gotten from these Galatians that they are a people in need of doctrine. Look at how he begins this letter. He says, Paul, an apostle, and then he begins to say that it is through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. Now imagine this. You are a missionary. You have planted some churches. You hear there are troubles. You hear there are fights. You hear there are difficulties. And the first thing you do is remind them of a teaching. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead because of the power of God the Father. The very first thing He begins with is the resurrection. Why would He do this? He knows it's because the Galatians and those Judaizers who are seeking to turn them from the Gospel are concerned about power. About having control. And it's as if Paul says to them, 
Let me show you where real power is. The power to rise from the grave. There's another thing that's interesting here that we'll see in weeks to come. One of the main issues with respect to these Judaizers, perhaps the crucial thing that drives them was not that they were smarter than everyone else, not that they had read all the best books, not that they knew all the best rabbis, but flip over to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 12. He says, Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, the Judaizers, simply so that they will not be persecuted. For the cross of Christ. You see, what's driving the Judaizers and causing trouble in Galatia is people don't want to see persecution. And so Paul reminds them of the greatest act of persecution ever in the history of the world. And he couples that persecution with power. The death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't just remind them of the resurrection. He reminds them of who Jesus Christ is. If this were a seminary class, Paul would say, now it's time to turn to Christology. Who is Jesus? And look what he says. He says that he's an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And then in verse 3, he says, grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember again, this is one of the first letters that Paul has written. And in the very first breath, he says... Do you know the Jesus that I told you about? He's God. He's risen from the dead. He's the one that brings to you grace and peace. You see, the Galatians are tempted right now to turn from the power that is found in Jesus Christ toward what they think is power. The false power of God found in ceremonies. And you see, Paul says, you've got it all wrong. It's not as if the Old Testament says something and I'm saying something else when telling you about Jesus. Jesus is God. This is a question that you all probably ask your children. Who is Jesus? Well, He's God, of course. What a fundamental truth. What an important doctrine the Galatians need to learn. And then, of course, what this epistle is probably best known for, the teaching that we are made right with God, that we are justified by faith. There's something interesting again in the beginning here of Galatians. If you have time this afternoon, flip through before or after lunch and look at just the first six, seven verses of each of Paul's letters. Every letter begins pretty much the same. I thank God for you because... I thank my God because there's only two exceptions. The first is Galatians. The second is 1 Timothy. And I don't think it's any coincidence that in both of those cases, Paul is directly confronting false teaching about how one is justified with God. It's as if Paul doesn't have time for niceties. The gospel is at stake here. Life and death, eternal life and death is at stake. It's also a great pain to Paul because the Galatians had started so well. If we look at Acts 13 and how Paul went through these cities, we see that he had actually some success among the Jews. And then he had even greater success among the Gentiles. The success was so great that the Jews who were opposed to the teachings of Paul 
drove him out of these cities because he was winning too many converts. And so Paul, it's as if he's pleading with them. You started so well. You understood the Gospel so well. Let me remind you of it. So there are people in need of teaching. But there are also people in need of spiritual living. Because we know it's not enough to just think right. We have to act right as well. Because lives that are marked by love are practical expressions of the doctrine that we espouse. You see, this is the most Pauline of all the Pauline epistles. This is the place where you go for justification by faith. This is the place you go for that doctrine. And yet, it shouldn't surprise us that Paul takes two chapters of this letter in the midst of a brawl over the Gospel to tell the Galatians how to live by the Spirit in chapters 5 and chapter 6. You see, he knows that the problem that's going on here as a result of the false teaching is that the Galatians are being encouraged to live lives trying not to make mistakes. They're not interested in ministry. We'll see that in chapter 6. They're having trouble supporting the faithful teachers. They're just trying not to step on landmines. They're not doing what they have been called to do. They're living lives like this. Some of you may be fans of college football. And you may have had a team that you supported that was up by six points with a minute and 15 seconds left. And you hear the announcer say those dreaded words, they're going into the prevent defense. And then you begin to do, if you are like me, this. You yell at the television. You fools! The prevent defense prevents nothing, is what we say. We try to be so safe to prevent that long pass that the offense dinks its way down the field and they score the touchdown to go up by one, right? Well, that's just an illustration, but that's what the Christian life can be like sometimes. We waste our lives trying not to make mistakes. Trying because we think that what we do affects the way God looks at us. That if we forget something or do something not quite right, God won't love us as much as He did yesterday. But you see, that's not true. And Paul is correcting us. There are also people in need of unity. There are people in need of teaching, living, and unity. Paul reminds them in chapter 6, the famous passage to bear one another's burdens. He reminds them not to grow weary in serving one another. Why would he do this? It's because self-justification, seeing that I am right with God because of what I do, inevitably leads to something. Competition. I'm closer to God than you are because I memorize three Bible verses a day. And you only memorize one. I have an hour-long quiet time. Not like these 15-minute quiet times. It breeds competition. It breeds disunity. It breeds disruption. Because everyone is trying to scramble up the ladder to God. And we don't see fellow believers as those who build us up. We see them as people in our way, between us and God. 
That's what's happening in Galatians. And it causes us also to be disunified, to keep things from one another. We have burdens on our hearts and we say, I can't really tell the pastor about that. Because if I do that, he'll never let me teach Sunday school again. And then what will people think of me? And how will I serve the Lord? And what will the Lord think if I'm not teaching Sunday school? I can't tell my friend that because then she may not want me to lead the preschool group. And then where would I be? And so we hold it inside. And we keep it from others because we're trying to keep ourselves at a distance, closer to God. But you see, it's not just unity from within that's a problem. It's attacks from without. These Judaizers are troublemakers, Paul says. They are agitators. The same word that Paul uses is the word that is used of the Jews. You know, the scene in Acts, something's going on, the church is expanding, people are professing faith in Christ, and then these guys come in and they break up everything. They incite the crowd, they throw rocks, they do all kinds of horrible things. They're troublemakers. Now they're in the church. They're disunity. And you see, this is not just Paul's view, because this is exactly what the council of Jerusalem would say in Acts 15, verse 24. James calls them exactly what they are, same word. He says, you're troublemakers. You're disrupting the unity of the church. Because they're striking at the heart of the church. You see, they're trying to rob the church of Jesus' words. You remember what Jesus said in John 14 when the disciples were didn't know which way to go because they had just found out that Jesus is going to die and suffer and their whole world is turned upside down. And what does our Lord say to them? He says, let not your heart be troubled. That's what He says. But you see, these men want your heart to be troubled. They want you to be worried because then you'll work harder. Because then you'll ask them for advice more often. It's the exact opposite of the teaching of Jesus. This is the church that Paul had to deal with. So let's now take a look at who God sends to this church to help them. He sends Paul. This is a very interesting choice. I hope you can appreciate it. Again, remember, this is pre-Acts 15. And we tend to think of the Apostle Paul as the one you send if there's a trouble. After all, he wrote half the New Testament. After all, he's the one that everyone looks up to. Not now. Up at this point, to be honest with you, the church is the Peter show. Peter is the one that people look up to. Peter is the one who's preaching powerful sermons. Peter is the one who is the leader. And if it's not Peter, it would be James. After all, James is the one that they pick to head up the council. And we might also think, okay, if you're going to pick someone to deal with people who are causing trouble in the church because of Judaizing, you take Peter or James, right? You don't try and convince a businessman to do something by sending a hippie, right? 
You don't take a person who has a free personality and send a person to convince them what to do who is the most organized person on earth and has to have pencils and pens straight. You send someone after their own kind who can appreciate them and their personality. Why does God send Paul? It's also curious because who was it that Paul was? Paul was a hypocrite. Paul could say to the Galatians, you know, I understand what you're going through. I've been there. I've done that. I've done the Judaizing thing better than anybody. That's basically what he says in Philippians 3. He says, you see them? That was me. To the nth degree. But he would have that reputation. And Paul even begins this letter saying, you know who I am? I was a hypocrite. I was a persecutor of the church. I was an outsider. Now, let me ask you a question. If you want to convince someone of something, do you begin on a sour note? Kids, when you are asking for a snack, do you begin with, you know, Mom, I'm pretty sure it'll ruin my dinner and probably cause me to be cranky tonight, but could I have a snack? No. You say, I've been working really hard and I'm hungry and I looked at the box and this is really nutritious for me, right? You, you start with the positives. But Paul doesn't. He leads out here saying, listen, everything about me that was horrible was this. That's where he starts. He says, I was the guy beating up on the church. I was the Judaizer. I was the outsider that was so outside that after the Lord met me, nobody in the church wanted to talk to me. The leaders had to force them to talk to me to find out I was okay. Paul leads with this. Why does he lead with who he was? I think it's because he then tells us who he is. This is that power thing again. Remember the power of the resurrection? Paul's giving them a personal story. This is an old-fashioned testimony. He says, this is who I was. Now let me tell you about who I am. He's redeemed. I want you to notice something very important here for your life. Paul is not afraid to tell his story. Think about that. In the context that an attack on his personality and his credibility is being used to attack the gospel. That's what the Judaizers are doing. They're attacking the gospel by saying, you believe this load of malarkey from this false apostle? He chooses that time to tell his story. A story of grace. Have you ever faced this? How do you react in this situation? When you have an opportunity to tell of God's grace. Do you downplay the grace of God by downplaying the life that you lived because you're embarrassed by it? Do you upplay what you have done because somehow that makes you look better now? You see, Paul knew that the power is not in how good he was now. 
but in the change that had been wrought in him by the living God. He was not afraid to tell his story. But who he is is not just one who's redeemed. He's also part of a family. Notice this way that he begins his letter in verse 2. He says, Paul, an apostle, we'll get to that in just a minute, but he says, and all the brethren who are with me. Now think about that. Here's an apostle. It's a pretty important man. Probably the founding pastor of many of these churches. And what he wants Galatia to see, he wants the church to see, is that he is a part of the kingdom of God. A part of the family of God. This isn't just a letter that comes from him. It comes from all the brethren that are with him. You see, this is typically how Paul describes himself regardless of the context. In each of his letters, he'll say, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and the brothers who are with me. (coughs) Because Paul wants to remind the church and us that he is not a lone ranger. That he is experiencing the blessings of unity in the people of God. He also wants to remind the Galatians that this is not his personal opinion. You know, it's very fashionable in the last 30 or 40 years to talk about Pauline theology and Johannine theology and Petrine theology. And somehow I think it's just a way to use fancy words. Somehow as if these apostles have different emphases and they believe different things. But that's not what Paul says here right off the bat. He says, all the brothers with me. They know I'm writing this letter. They've read it. They're in agreement with me. Paul is one who is part of a family. But he's not just a part of a family. He's also an apostle. And he begins the letter very strongly in verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle, (coughs) not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. You see, by saying he's an apostle, that's a very important thing. There are certain special requirements to being an apostle. You had to see the risen Christ. You had to be chosen by Him to be His messenger. That doesn't mean you couldn't be important if you weren't an apostle, but it meant that even if you had gifts and skills and abilities beyond some of the other apostles, you couldn't be an apostle. It wouldn't matter if Barnabas was a better evangelist than Matthew or Bartholomew. He didn't meet the requirement. It's like this. Can anyone be president of the United States, kids? Could Arnold Schwarzenegger be president of the United States? Why? He's big and smart. Got a lot of people that like him. Why can't he? It's because he's not an American-born citizen. doesn't matter how popular you are. You have to be over 35... And you have to be an American-born citizen. You can't be a naturalized citizen. That's what being an apostle was like. If you didn't fit that test, you never could fit the test. And Paul is saying implicitly here, reminding the Galatians that I'm the apostle. (coughs) They're not. They may say they've got all kinds of whiz-bang theology. But I meet the requirement. I didn't just have the laying out of hands of men. 
I was set apart by God and Jesus Christ. But he's still an envoy. He's still somebody who is sent. Just because he's an apostle doesn't make him an authority apart from God. You see, being an apostle is like getting a commission in the military. You're sent out. You're one under authority. You see, this is the point that the Judaizers are really attacking. They want people to think that Paul's not a real apostle. And therefore, what he says isn't important. But you see, Paul says, I have been commissioned by Jesus Christ Himself. Just as a final aside on this, I'd like you to think about one other thing for our life in the church. Paul, the Apostle of Jesus Christ, called by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus by a visible sign, struck blind. Pretty good commissioning, right? He still, in Acts 13, submits to ordination from the church. He's not too proud to be commissioned by the church. He doesn't say, well, I'll lay hands on Barnabas, but you remember me. You know, lightning, horse, blindness, got that covered already. No. He is working within the structure that God has designed, the church. Think about that. This is who God has sent to the Galatians. It's someone who has a past, but has been redeemed from that past. Someone who is a part of a family and who is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the reason that God sends Paul is because God, Jesus Christ, has a message for the Galatians. You see, we miss the picture here. If, like many modern commentators, we see this as sort of a battle between Paul and some people in Galatia. And Paul's going to fix things. No. God is going to fix things. God is concerned about what is going on in His church. It's not Paul's church. It's not the Judaizers' church. It's God's church. And God sends His man at His time to bring a message to the Galatians because God knows what they need. He knows the difficulties that they're going through. And so He is going to bring them through Paul reminders of three things. That He is providing faith to them. That He is providing grace to them. And that He is providing peace to them. You see, Paul is reminding them of the truth from God that the only way to be right with God is by faith. You see, the problem in the church is that many, most, Probably all of us are recovering Pharisees. Now, I don't mean by that the sense in which we think the Pharisees are people who are just a little bit stricter than, than I am with God's commands. You don't avoid being a Pharisee by saying, well, you know, I don't really care what I do on Sunday. I'm not real uptight about the fourth commandment. Well, you know, I'm not really uptight about this whole business of the second commandment and how we worship God. Well, you know, I don't get into all of the details and tie myself up in knots about whether this is stealing or not. No. 
A Pharisee is someone who thinks he is close to God because of what he does. And there's a sense in which we're all recovering from that. Phil Riken puts it this way. He says, we all understand in a way that grace is free, but we're constantly trying to put a surcharge on it. You know? It's as if we don't really believe that this past weekend here was a tax-free weekend. And we're insisting on shoving the tax in the teller's hands. Because somehow that'll make what we buy more valuable. Somehow that'll make it more meaningful. But you see, that's not true. You see, the only way to be right with God is by faith. Paul reminds us of that in chapter 2. Look with me at verse 16. He says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we're made right with God. But you see, God also tells us that faith is the only way to live. It's not just the way we start. It's the way we go every day. For just a few verses down in verse 20, Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by work and sweat of my brow. Right? Is that what your Bible says? No. My Bible says, by faith in the Son of God who loved me. You see, we need faith not just for starting, but for living. And faith is the source of all our hope. Look with me at chapter 5. In verse 5, where Paul says this about faith, For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. So he's tying faith in with this resurrection that he's mentioned earlier. Faith is the beginning. Faith is the middle. Faith is the end. Doesn't leave any room for works, does it? Paul's tied that all up very nicely. It's not just faith that we need, though. Because faith is a vehicle. It's an instrument. The substance is found in the grace of God. And so, Paul reminds the Galatians and us that God provides grace to us. Grace is the way that God reaches out to us. God comes to us, Paul says. We don't go to Him. Directly contradicting what the Judaizers are saying. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, I'm amazed you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by grace. By the grace of Christ. How did you get where you are, Galatians? It's by grace. And then he ups the ante and he says, you know what? Let me give you another example. Verse 15, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, God was showing His grace to me before I was even born, Paul says. How could I reach out to God? I wasn't even born yet. And God was reaching down to me in grace. You see, the fact that God's grace reaches down to us and we don't reach up to Him shows that the real value of a person is found in the grace of God in their lives, not what they do. You see, seeking to find value in yourself is to lose all value. That's what Paul says. He says in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, you can't be justified apart from grace. 
He says in chapter 3, verse 1, you can't live without grace. He says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Who's tricked you? How do you think you can live without grace? Because grace is contrary to self-justification. You see, it's not a matter of just grace plus something, which is how it always comes to us. It's never, well, I hate grace and you just need to do, 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 do. It's always, Jesus is great. Jesus is gracious. I have faith plus in the back door. That's how this attack comes. You see, justifying ourselves before God nullifies the grace of God. Paul says that in chapter 2, verse 21. He says, if you could justify yourself, then Christ died needlessly. You're making it of no effect at all. And he goes further in chapter 5, verse 4. He says, if you do this, seeking to be justified by the law, you have been severed from Christ. You haven't just lost grace, you've lost Jesus. You've lost everything. There's no way you can add anything at all. Well, God provides faith. And God provides grace. And this faith and this grace leads to something else. And it's part of Paul's initial prayer for them. He says to them, grace to you and peace. You see, if we have faith and we have grace, that leads to peace. Because peace is a fruit of the Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 22. And how does one get the Spirit? But by being united to Christ by faith. You see, peace comes from grace and faith. How are we made right with God? By grace through faith. And what does it mean to be right with God but to be at peace with God? So the only way we can find peace with God is through grace and faith. And you see, peace is a result of being a new creation. We don't somehow work ourselves up into peace and then we get over the hump to being a new creation. Look at how Paul ends his letter in chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. He says, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule... Peace and mercy be upon them. You see, it's a result of being a new creation. And peace is the answer to proper spiritual living. That's how we bear one another's burdens. Peace is the answer to unity in the body. Do you see the trend here? Faith, grace, peace, and all of the benefits that flow from it. And the source for this is the same God who intervened in Paul. It's as if Paul says, look at what God did in my life. Don't you want Him to do that in yours too? Are you going to sacrifice that for the scraps that these troublemakers are throwing at you? So that they'll think you're smart? Or so that they'll call on you in class? Or so that they'll want to go to your house for dinner? He says, look at what God has done. 
And you see, what's going to unfold here in this whole letter is basically this. Seeing that the Galatians are a people with a problem. Just like you and me. And that God has sent them a messenger, the Apostle Paul. And the wonderful thing is He sent the same messenger to us by this letter. And that what He is sending through the Apostle Paul for them and for us and our good is faith, grace, and peace. Because that's what God wants for the Galatians. And that's what God wants for Christ Church Katy. He wants you to be a people marked by a fervent faith. With grace overflowing, not just in this congregation, but in this whole community. That we might know the peace of God and peace among each other. That's what we'll be seeing, Lord willing. It's a marvelous undertaking. And you can see why so many people love the book of Galatians. I look forward to mining its treasures with you in weeks to come.